read earlier from the aisles from the earlier part of Isaiah. And Isaiah really has three separate parts that we'll talk more about later. But this incredible prophet, often referred to as the fifth gospel, because it was clearly from Isaiah's words that Jesus felt most inspired and, and quoted most often. It's quoted most often in the New Testament and is given comfort and hope to so many individuals. So after the first 39 chapters of judgment and wrath, hear now the good word of the gospel from the prophet Isaiah. Comfort. Oh, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that she has served her term. Her penalty is paid. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries out. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places plain. Then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out, and I say, what shall I cry? All people are grass. Their constancy is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers. The flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion. Herald of good tidings, lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. Herald of good tidings, lift it up. Do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. See, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. His reward is with him, his recompense before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead the mother sheep. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Giver of life. Giver of hope. Give us ears to hear. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable sacrifice in your sight. You are our rock, our strength, and our redeemer. Amen. Isaiah says, here I am, Lord, and a prophet is born. Remember that God gives the word to the prophet's mouth. In Jeremiah, it's just vaguely a mouth, but here in Isaiah, there's a burning coal to the lips in Isaiah's vision. Now, not unlike many of the other prophets we've been reading about, this story starts after the northern kingdom of Israel has been totally wiped out by the Assyrians. But still, it seems like Judah, the southern kingdom, has some hope. Sennacherib and the Assyrians have been continuing to attack, sometimes small battles, sometimes bigger ones, and they 
and Judah win some, and they lose some, and they often tried to win it out with the help of the alignment of the Egyptian power to the south. But after a particularly bad wave of destruction, King Hezekiah is ready to surrender to the Assyrians. But then he listens to the prophecies of Isaiah. He tells them to fend them off in the face of a much larger, much more powerful army. And they are assisted by an angel of the Lord that, according to some records, reportedly killed 185,000 Assyrian troops in one night. Assyria doesn't mess with Judah or Egypt anymore after that point. Now, Isaiah might have prophesied as long as 64 years, which as far as prophets go, when you have most of the kings wanting to kill you, is pretty good. And some rabbinic literature suggests he was martyred by being sawn in two by the next king, King Manasseh. Isaiah, during his time, spoke of the day of the Lord, as many of the prophets did. A day of the Lord when God would bring the whole world to, to Zion, to Jerusalem. When this great unification would then bring forth a ruler from the house of David that would lead to eternal peace for the world. Does that sound like Christmas to you? Because it's the prophet we usually bring up at Christmas time. The messages, and especially Isaiah 9, are full of righteousness and hope. This wonderful counsel, this mighty God, this everlasting Father, this Prince of Peace. Now Isaiah might have been talking about other rulers in the area. It might have been an editorial future tense to the King Cyrus of Persia. But regardless, Christians through the centuries have found hope in these, these words of proto-Isaiah. I say proto-Isaiah because chapters 1 through 39 are clearly a unit and clearly connected to at least a man. And they're full of judgment, full of talking about Hezekiah and all the bad things he keeps doing. And obviously you don't hear about Manasseh because Isaiah gets killed by Manasseh. But then chapter 40 comes. Now remember from last week, Hezekiah's peace lasts until the new empire comes along. Do I remember the name of that empire? Starts with a B. The Babylonians. The Babylonians come along and absolutely massacre the Judeans. And they exile a lot of citizens, but especially the leaders in the elite communities. In other words, Chevy Chase. You cannot underestimate the societal impact and the traumatic stress on a people that have been enslaved by the Egyptians for several hundred years, and then later exiled from their homes for another 50, forced to live in the capital city of the very people who ruined and ransacked your homes and your temple and your faith, raped and pillaged the people you love. What kind of word did those people need to hear? In Deutero-Isaiah, second Isaiah, starting in chapter 40, the prophet speaks no more of condemnation, but of hope. I'll never forget when this text normally comes up in the lectionary, which is the second Sunday of Advent, that my pastor I grew up with, Pastor Bill, reminded me that food is for the body, what hope is for the soul. 
food is for the body, what hope is for the soul. And hope is what we get in this dramatic shift. In chapter 39, Isaiah is telling Hezekiah to stop being friends with this envoy from Babylon. They are not your friends. They are going to hurt the people of Judah. And Hezekiah just kind of brushes him off. Well, between that chapter and chapter 40, the exile happens. The destruction of Judah happens. And then Deuteroisaiah opens with this statement that a people now in exile have hope. And if anybody has heard Handel's Messiah, you know how it begins. Comfort ye. Dun, dun, dun. And then you get that, the, the violin, the dun, dun, dun. There's sort of this driving force of hope that Handel writes into the music, right? Comfort ye my people. But since we're not Victorian English speakers, let's go to the American South to try and remember what that actually means. Comfort, y'all. Comfort, y'all. We struggle in English with the second person, especially second person imperative plurals, but we're helped out from the South in this sense. You, comfort. Now, what kind of comfort are we talking about here? Like, it's okay? You'll be better tomorrow? Delmer Chilton is one of my favorite preachers from the South. And he mentions there are different kinds of comfort, and there are different ways that people in the South can talk about comfort. So in the South, there's a statement that's meant to be a statement of comfort and support. There's also a subtle sort of way to invoke pity for a person that you really don't pity much at all, sort of a genteel put down, a backhanded compliment. And he's speaking, of course, of the phrase, well, bless your heart. He said, we Southerners use it as a genuine form of solidarity and suffering. For example, if someone loses a loved one, they'll say, well, bless your heart. When there's an accident or the serious illness, the phrase comes in handy, well, bless your heart. But there's also the more insidious usage. Say when someone's prattling on about this or that, which doesn't really interest us or concern us, becomes more of a conversational foil or means of avoidance. Oh, well, bless your heart. Of course, then there's the third person form of the phrase, most often used when sharing a concern, which usually means a judgment. Yes, poor Margaret, I don't know why she puts up with Ralph's shenanigans. Bless her heart. Comfort really is a curious thing, isn't it? What does it require to be comfort or to be comforted in a time of distress or need? The answer is there are multiple levels and multiple ways to receive it, much as we can in multiple ways receive the text here. Scholars for a long time have thought about how are we to, to pick up on this dramatic shift in the text from stories about Isaiah, and all of a sudden, here's this imperative. Comfort, y'all. One theologian, Elna Solvang, suggests that the passage begins with an insistent double imperative for meaning. Comfort, comfort. So the question is, should we be the ones getting to work at this? Have we gone from third-person omniscient narrator to you? Receive this message. Get going. Be the receivers of the word of the Lord. Be the ones who tell us good tidings of Zion. Tell the people of Judah, behold your God. 
That doesn't really seem to align with the editor's attempts to keep this sort of prophetic voice of Isaiah going, although they don't try really hard. The name Isaiah doesn't happen for the next rest of the book. But it does put us to work, doesn't it, as heralds of good news and unifying hope. And you do this, right? Whenever you proclaim the year of the Lord's favor in your family, your place of work, amongst your friends or your volunteer organizations, you continue that prophetic tradition declaring that the day of the Lord has arrived and that God's redeeming hope is happening now. That is an important way to read this text. Another way that the word of the Lord could hit you comes from Corinne Carvalho, who says that we should read this comfort not as a command, but as joyful astonishment for the God who delivers. And remember, for these people who received this text, probably after the exile, they're doing some remembering, remembering what it would have felt for their family and friends to have heard this message while living in Babylon. So in this reading, it could be the call of a new prophet whose conversation we are purposely being brought in to eavesdrop on. Because this news is astonishing. Imagine what it's like if you are forced to live hundreds of miles away from your family and friends. That collective traumatic stress of the Israelites in exile and from the slavery before them, that this would have been incredible life-giving words. Torah aura. The people who walk in darkness, as Isaiah said, have seen now a great light. And this is a good word for folks who are not in the place where they can follow in the prophetic tradition, but need to hear the prophetic word. For those of you suffering from illness, struggling with depression, physical pain and chronic pain that you can't seem to get rid of, isolation and hopelessness, if you are a helper or a caretaker or a sympathizer with those in the valley of the shadow of darkness, hear this word of the Lord today that the uneven ground will become level. The rough places are coming plain. Remember, it's not just did the miracle happen, but does the miracle happen? Because food is for the body, what hope is for the soul. Samuel Gerr suggested with these opening words of 2nd Isaiah, the prophet offers a balm for the festering wounds of exile. Against the prophetic backdrop of 1st Isaiah and the sort of experiential backdrop of people's life in exile, the prophet's message is in spite of and in the midst of human misery, the Lord continues to be the God who speaks and acts. The Lord's power is both vastly unimaginable and revealed in care and tenderness. I think it's that sort of dual nature of Isaiah that makes it so popular. You have both this God who levels down mountains and lifts up valleys and these incredible acts of power and strength. And then also comes alongside and hears about the fragility of humanity and says the grass withers and the flower fades and humanity is but a moment. But I, my word, are with you forever. 
We had 11 verses from our reading today. Six of them are in Handel's Messiah. There are 53 or 47 movements in the Messiah, depending on how you count it up. And all in all, about 17 different verses of the, go the gospel according to Isaiah are featured in that classic piece. Now, we know the world isn't all peaches and cream, but Isaiah calls out that reality. Theologian Solvang suggests that the contrasting images serve to highlight the chasm between Yahweh and the people. They have sinned, but God has stayed true. They are fragile, but God is powerful. This poem focuses on the declaration of the human condition. Grass withers. Flowers fade. A reality that is too well known by this ancient audience whose lifespans were at least half of ours. Their own intergenerational experience of exile has demonstrated that God, they thought, did not care whether they lived or died. That they're no more than blades of grass or crushed by a war warrior rushing to glory. Ah, but no. Comfort. That's what this poem is about. This divine warrior in those preceding verses that is crushing on the grass as an arm outstretched to slay an enemy instead bends down and scoops the little lambs into the divine bosom. My friends, what does startling comfort look like today? We're in a fixer culture when just like I was telling our kids, we like to go to people who are hurt or sad and try to tell them the right words. We want to fix them. We want to tell them how they can solve their problem. When the hardest thing to do and the most valuable thing that any human person can do to help another person's suffering is simply to show up, to sit next to them and attempt to empathize. See, the poem doesn't promise that all suffering will cease. It doesn't deny the change, the, this brokenness of the human condition, that, that nothing's going to be changed about that. It suggests that some of us may be called to be messengers of a declaration, which others in pain may find hard to fathom. But no matter where we locate ourselves in this poem, it ultimately reminds us that the unexpected can happen. God still sends comfort into our short and frail lives. Yes, all of us are like grass. Our days are numbered from ashes to ashes and dust to dust. Yes, the grass withers. Yes, the flower fades. But the word of the Lord will stand forever. Hear those words of hope, my friends. Thanks be to God, and amen. <laughs>